Welcome to the Gardens Podcast. This message titled A Wake Up Call was given by Darren Roundson and is the first in our series, The Kingdom. So uh, grab a Bible. Uh, I'm going to get going on this. We went a little long, but that's okay. I'm, um, if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. You can um, grab one of our Bibles on the side. Uh, if, if you don't have a Bible at home, please take a Bible home. We're starting a new series today. I'm so excited. Um, we are going through, the, it's called The Kingdom. Wow, you really can't see this. Following Jesus in times of chaos. We went through the Sermon on the Mount. We went through the seven deadly sins. We went through the Ten Commandments. And now we're looking at the primary message of Jesus Christ. The Kingdom of God. Um, most of us m- might have a recollection of what that means. The Kingdom is practically the reign and rule of Yahweh. Um, you would say that... Uh, Looking at this world, you would say the kingdom of this world is probably marked by sin, death, anxiety, fear, destruction, joylessness. And the kingdom of God, I would say, would be marked or would be demonstrated the way God intended His world to be in the first place. That's the reign of God and that is marked by shalom, by wholeness, by peace, by joy, by life, rest. And we're going to spend, I don't even know, over a year going through the narrative of Mark to look at the themes that are pulled out of this amazing gospel of the kingdom of God. We're going to talk about how the kingdom comes and opposes the kingdom of the world in a very violent way. You'll see demons shriek. You'll see creation put back into order. You'll see the dead raised. And we've heard stories, but Jesus comes saying that this Shalom, this life, this peace, this is at your grasp. We as disciples have at our fingertips this power, this life, this way. So it's the kingdom, the kingdom of God. So let's look at Mark. Go to Mark chapter 1. I'm going to grab my Bible. Um, And we're going to look at eight verses of Mark. And uh, we'll land um, at the end. All right. You guys with me? Okay. So Mark chapter 1. First of all, Mark, I want to just give you a, a quick synopsis of him. He's, his name's John Mark. He's the companion of Paul. He uh, is writing this letter, this narrative of, of the gospel of Jesus in Rome, probably around the 65 AD. He's also writing it under the direction of Peter, the apostle. And so um, that, that's helpful, and we'll kind of tease out some of the, the practical social context as we, um, as we come about it in each, kind of each week. Um, And we're going to look at the kingdom more in depth when we get to that place. But today we're looking at Mark chapter 1, verse 1. Let me read this and read this with me. The beginning of the good news or the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophet Isaiah, See, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make the path straight. John the baptizer, John the Baptist, appeared in the wilderness proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And people from the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him and were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist. He ate locusts and wild honey. He proclaimed, the one who is coming... The one who is more powerful than I is coming after me, 
I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The beginning of this amazing gospel begins with this line. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, we really, we really have to go back to the context. We have to go back, and this is going to be a history lesson today, and I'm going to tie in at the end, but we have to understand what Mark is writing, because this sentence is, is a proclamation beyond proclamations. It's a, a beautifully compact, theologically loaded proclamation. The beginning. Mark is tying his gospel narrative to the beginning. What's the beginning? Genesis. And he's saying that this is the continuation of God's story. It's the beginning of the gospel. The word gospel is euangelion. Say it with me. Euangelion. That's where we get the word evangel, evangelism. And, and it's a political, uh, military victory term. This word in the first century was very common. It would have been tweeted all the time. If you, if you followed it on Twitter, it would have hash marks um, on Twitter. Sorry, Tweeter. Did I say Tweeter? Whatever. I've stopped doing it so much because Bill convicted me. Um, but the word gospel comes from this understanding that if you were a king and you won a victory battle over another king, messengers would come to your village and bring good news, bring gospel. And this, this word was used um, uh, right around the time Caesar Augustus has his, had his birthday in 9 AD. Right around the time Jesus was born. So by the time Mark begins to write his gospel, this would have been a culturally relevant term. And it has to do with good news. Gospel, the good news. So in the beginning, linking it to Genesis, of a culturally relevant term, the gospel of Jesus. Now Jesus is the, is the Greek translation of Joshua, or the Hebrew word Yeshua. And Yeshua means Yahweh saves. In the beginning of the good news that Yahweh saves, Christ, Jesus Christ. How many of you know what Christ, it means anointed one. Yahweh saves, someone filled with the Holy Spirit. Someone blessed and filled by God. That's what it means to to have Jesus' last name, Christ. The anointed one. And And then it goes on to the Son of God. And this is a phrase used all throughout the Old Testament to describe, and throughout the New Testament to describe the Messiah. So this, this theologically compact, loaded phrase is it's the beginning and the continuation of God's story. It's good news. It's culturally relevant to us right now. Of Yahweh saves the, the Spirit-filled man, the Messiah. That's the title of Mark. Most people think that, that that would be the title of the book Mark was writing. You guys see that, how, how significant that is? It's just me as a student who loves learning the Greek and Hebrew. Powerful. This is a statement of statements. And then it continues. As it is written, so this is the beginning of the good news of Jesus, but then he goes right into Isaiah. As it is written by the prophet Isaiah, see, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his path straight. Mark immediately ties his gospel to the lens of the Old Testament. If you want to know anything about Jesus, you have to have the framework and story of the entire Old Testament. Now, uh, this is coming out of Isaiah 40, chapter 40, verse 3. Go there real quick. I want to show you that Mark misquotes Isaiah. Funny, huh? This 
guided by the Holy Spirit, he's, he's up to something and he, he misses something. But he doesn't do it. He misses it on purpose. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, it says, A voice cries out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. It seems like there's, there's a section missing. And the section comes out of Exodus chapter 23, verse 20. And it also comes out of Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. So this is what's happening. You don't have to go there. Mark's starting off this new gospel saying, this is the beginning of something new. It's Jesus. Yahweh saves, saves the Messiah, the Spirit-filled man. But, but he's looking at it now that's saying it's, it's a continuation of a long story that was before Jesus. And you have to look at the rest of the narrative of Mark through the lens of Isaiah. We have to look at this story of Mark through the lens of Isaiah. And in this section, I, uh, Mark uses Malachi chapter 3, verse 1 that describes this guy that would come that would prepare the way for the Lord. And later it will describe this guy that looks like Elijah, or maybe it's Elijah himself. That's Malachi, chapter 3 and 4. And then he also ties it to Exodus chapter 23, verse 20, where God says to the Israelites, hey, I'm going to send an angel before you, and he will fight your battle as you enter into the promised land. Now why would Mark tie all of this in? What's Mark up to? In order to fully grasp what I think is happening in this amazing eight verse or so, in these amazing eight verses, we really need the history of Israel. So I'm going to attempt to give you a synopsis of Israel. So for those of you that don't like the Old Testament and haven't read the entire thing, um, it's okay, you're forgiven. Uh, Come to the Old Testament survey class hosted by Bill Foundations a couple weeks from now. I'm going to give you the story. So it begins with Egypt. Egypt is a theme throughout the entire gospel. We see that the story of Israel, I'm sorry, the entire Old Testament, the story of Israel begins in Exodus. Now we know it begins with Abraham, but really it begins in Exodus. We see that a nation called Egypt has enslaved a nation called Israel. And this nation, Egypt, is the superpower of its day. It's, it's uh, led by Pharaoh. You've heard this story told dozens and dozens of times. But basically, these Israelites are in slavery to the Egyptians. And what are the Egyptians doing? They're building an empire brick by brick. They build palaces. They build temples. They build homes. They build armies. And they're using their power to oppress the Israelites. And the Israelites cry out. They cry out to God. And God says, I hear your cries. Um, uh, I'm going to rescue you. He says that I've seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So God hears the cry of the oppressed. He hears the cry of the Israelites. And he sends his messenger, Moses. And Moses comes and battles the Egyptian leader, Pharaoh. Do you know the story? We've heard this before. We talked about the Ten Commandments. But we have to understand that if Egypt is here on this story, right here, Something happened that made Egypt basically personify everything God's against. So what happened? Genesis chapter 1. Now stay with me. I'm going to take you through a timeline. Genesis chapter 1 begins. Chapter 2, it's another account of the, of the creation. Chapter 3, what happened? Sin enters into the garden through a couple. Within one generation, we see a murder What happened in the garden begins to affect other generations. Eleven chapters, or a few chapters later, in Genesis chapter 11. What happens in chapter 11? 
An entire civilization is corrupted by sin. What are they doing? They're building a city. They're building a tower called Babel. They're displacing God. They're saying that we, civilization, mankind, can become gods. You guys know the story? The sin that started in the garden begins to infect and impact the globe. And we see Egypt later on in the story. And Egypt personifies power being used to oppress people. It's, it's, uh, it's the opposite of God. It's anti-garden. It's good language. It's anti-God. It's anti-kingdom. So, so Moses comes. He frees the people. We have Egypt. The next place is Sinai. Moses leads the Israelites through the water of the Red Sea where it's called the baptism of Moses. And he brings them to Sinai where God says, hey, prepare yourselves to meet with me. And remember we talked about the Ten Commandments. I don't need to go in detail. He gives them Torah. He gives them the words of life. He says, if you obey me fully, if you keep my commandments, you will be my people, my treasured possession, a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. If you obey me fully, if, if, what happens to the Israelites? Generations later, we see them in Jerusalem. They go from Sinai, wandering as an ex-slave, a people group that have no land, that are just kind of learning to be God's people. They just wander for 40 years. They enter into the promised land, and generations later, they have a promised land that's secured. And Jerusalem is the capital. King David brings peace, secures the borders, is, has God's favor. But then his son, the son of David, catch this, the son of David comes into power. And he's brilliant, he's wise, he's the wealthiest man alive. And what does he do with the power? What does he do with that power God's given him? Well, think about it. He uses forced labor to build a temple. Brick by brick, he builds palaces. He builds homes. He stockpiles chariots. He builds armed forces. This guy, this ex, this ex uh, uh, sorry, this ex nation of slaves, all of a sudden is is using slaves to build an empire through Solomon. His power was designed to maintain justice and righteousness, and he uses power to build an empire. Jew Jerusalem becomes the new Egypt. Solomon becomes the new Pharaoh. Sinai was forgotten. Now remember what the, what the covenant was here in Sinai. Remember what a covenant was? It had to do with a marriage. God says, if you will be my, my people, I'll make a covenant with you. That word covenant has legal contract, but it has more to do with marriage. It's as if God's saying, if you be my people, I'll make a covenant. I will marry you. Marriage metaphor is what he uses. And what happens? Solomon has hundreds of wives and concubines. His heart is not fully devoted to God. What happens? He breaks what Sinai was intended to be. And prophets catch on to this. This is the story of the Old Testament. They recognize what's going on. You hear these stories. Prophets come and confront the kings. They're, they're condemning this type of behavior. And what is the king? What, are the, what do the Israelite leaders do? They kick them out. They put them in stocks. They put them in pits. They don't, have, they don't want to have anything to do it. In fact, there's a great story, Amos. How many of you know this story? A shepherd, Amos, comes to the Israelite king. A shepherd comes to the highest guy in the land, this new Egypt, and he condemns this king, and, the, and he gets kicked out. And the story continues. When they don't 
when the marriage between God and the Israelites is broken, God has to act again. Enters Babylon. How many of you know this story? Babylon comes in and, and kills the young men. It destroys, they destroy the temple. They destroy the walls of Jerusalem. This great nation is defeated. And all those who survive are exiled to foreign land where they become slaves once again to foreign rulers where they are enslaved by the Babylonians. And it's here that they cry out to God again. It's here where they repent. And it's here where Isaiah begins to prophesy in Babylon. And what, is, what does Isaiah say? Isaiah begins to talk about being, being taken by God out of, out of Babylon on wings like eagles. Does that sound like Exodus? He starts using language. He paints this picture of God marrying people. He says... Uh, for, for in Isaiah 54, verse 5, For your maker is your husband. For the Lord has called you like a wife, forsaken and grieved in spirit. In Isaiah 62, 5, it says, For as a young man marries a young woman, so your builder marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Isaiah in, in Babylon begins to talk about something called the new exodus. And he says it's not going to be like the exodus of the old, where, where, where there's a where God gives us tablets um, and, and just liberates us from one oppressive nation. No, no, no. This new exodus is different. It's totally new. It's not just liberation from an empire. It's liberation from anything that oppresses. That's the new exodus. And Jeremiah will say, well, this new marriage is not about a stone tablet. It's that God, in verse 31, 33 of Jeremiah, will put His law on my heart. And it's, God says, I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God, and they will be my people. This new exodus, this thing that Isaiah prophesies about, is describing what's going to happen when God comes again. And it's, an exodus is, is, is not just this thing that you talk about. It becomes a movement. It becomes a way of life. And Isaiah will say, the, uh, one is coming to prepare the way of the Lord. God's going to come back and free them. And what happens? Well, let me just add a couple of other things. Jeremiah, uh, uh, Isaiah talks about Jerusalem becoming a great city. Not like the old city where it's a capital, where, where, um, where there's kind of oppression and, and injustice, but the new city will be called the city of peace, a city of truth and peace. Isaiah begins to paint for the Israelites this new Exodus picture. Are you guys with me on that? How many of you have read Isaiah? A couple of us, okay. Um, but what happens? The Israelites, with Nehemiah, they come home, right? And Nehemiah records the Israelites coming back home. They come back to Jerusalem. They rebuild the walls. They rebuild the temple. And even when they rebuild the temple, it, it's, it, there's, there's grieving and there's celebration. They're, they're grieving what it once was and what it's not and the fact that it's new. But, but they came back under foreign occupation. The Persians occupy Jerusalem. The Greeks occupy Jerusalem. The Rome occupies Jerusalem. They're still in some type of exile. This new exodus never really happened fully. And so we read at the end of Malachi, someone's going to come that will prepare the way of, of, the, of the Lord. And the Egyptians enslaved Israel for 430 years. 430 years, Israelites were enslaved in Egypt. 
They go from Babylon back to Jerusalem around 430 B.C., according to Nehemiah. And for 430 years, they're back in Jerusalem under foreign occupation. But guess what? What happens after 430 years? Jesus is born. It's the story of Israel. Do you see, do you see this, this, this story? The new exodus didn't fully happen. They're waiting. Mark starts off his gospel in the beginning of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is said in the prophet Isaiah, according to all of this stuff, all of the promises that Isaiah had, see, I'm sending a messenger ahead of you who will prepare the way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Do you see how significant this is? Imagine if I started using words like this and you didn't know what I was talking about. Mordor, Gandalf, Fellowship, Eye of Saron, Saron, uh, Dwarfs, Middle Earth. Imagine if I, I start describing um, the two towers. For those of you that get this, you, you get it. The two towers, <laughs> the two towers begins abruptly and ends abruptly. But imagine if that's all you saw was that part. And you didn't, you didn't read the other volume. The Lord of the Rings, the, where this came from, the, the, the understanding that this is about a bigger battle of humankind, of Middle Earth, of, of the fellowship. I'm not a nerd, guys, I swear. I was talking to my brother last night, I'm like, the parallel of the two, of the, the two towers are so similar to Mark. It was weird. Because it is, it's true. I'll, tell you, I'll break that down later. Um, but do you get that if we start in the book of Mark, we have to have this Old Testament history. Are you with me? All right. Is anyone else excited about that? I mean, I love that story. All right. So the prophet Isaiah prophesies all this stuff, that there's, a, there's an anointed one, and he describes this, the, the guy, the Messiah, or whoever's going to come, Yahweh himself, is going to come as a servant. He'll be known as the son of David. What is Jesus called throughout the entire New Testament? Son of David. But then we pick up what this guy, this new Elijah, looks like. And in 1 Kings it describes this. And, and I just want to paint a picture of Elijah. We'll continue on. But you have the Old Testament framework. So we know that that's kind of what Mark is using as a lens to go forward now. So we understand that. We understand the significance of Isaiah. And, and, and we understand that the, the, the one that's going to prepare the way, he's going to be like Elijah or Elijah himself. And do you guys know what happened with Elijah? I mean, the guy was crazy looking, hairy, leather belt. At one point, it describes him battling the prophets of Baal on this mountaintop. He drenches this thing with water. And it's just ridiculous. And it's him versus all these people, hundreds of prophets. And fire comes down from the sky, burns up the offering, and then he kills all the prophets. That's Elijah. Yes, he's coming. I can't wait. And then we read this. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And, and people from the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were, were going out to him and they were confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair with a leather belt. He ate this weird diet. Now, and, and so it's describing that, no, 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 this is the right guy. And Mark's kind of hurrying through John to get to Jesus because it's really about what he's doing. But this is significant. Elijah came with power. 
came with this, this epic demonstration of God. And what is John doing? He says, repent. The Greek word is metanoia, metania. I forget, hold on. Yeah, metania. And uh, it means to change one's mind. The Hebrew word is teshuva. They say that one, teshuva. And that means to, uh, to, um, to, to turn home, basically. I love the Hebrew understanding of our repentance. It, it means that God intended us to be somewhere or live some way. And repentance is less about your sinful, stop doing it. And it's more about let's return back to the true self. The message that John brings is align yourself to God. The Israelites knew how to live. And he's saying, guys, align yourself and be baptized. Baptism, where is baptisma? So it's not as fun. Um, and it means to immerse. And, and the, uh, uh, an illustration attached to that, they get this phrase from what happens when you dye a piece of cloth. The nature of the cloth is changed. Baptism is a symbol of your belief or a symbol of your repentance, but it's also a recognition that your very nature is changed. And you see that the entire uh, Jerusalem, a very strategic city, yeah, is coming to repent and be baptized. This is what they're expecting. And they're expecting this guy to prepare the way. And what type of preparation do you think you're going to need? Let's sharpen our swords. Let's get ready for the battle. We're going to Rome, buddy. You know what I'm saying? We're going to take our swords and shields and we're going after these oppressors. And John says, repent. Preparation for the Messiah is turning home. How cool is that? Some of you might be disappointed. But, but look at what he says. Now, this is, this is going to frame the work and ministry of Jesus Christ. The one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I'm not worthy to perform a ceremonial washing or, or, or act that Gentile slaves can do. Not even Hebrew slaves are allowed to do this. Only Gentile slaves. And John says, no, no, no. There's one coming, and he's coming in power. And John is even confused what that looks like. It's, it, maybe it's Yahweh himself. Maybe it's a Messiah. Maybe it's a prophet. Maybe it's all three. Maybe it's both. And it says this, I have baptized you with water, a symbol of repentance, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. We read about the baptism in Pentecost, right? Acts 2. But the work and ministry, the kingdom, is the ministry of immersion of the Holy Spirit. This is about changing our very nature to be one full of the divinity. Full of the divine. Full of God Himself. So what we know of Jesus is this. According to verse 1, this is the beginning, the continuation, though, of a long-told story of God. And it's the beginning of Jesus, Yahweh, who saves, who's the anointed one, full of the Spirit, who is, who is Son of God. He is the Messiah. And His ministry is coming with power, and He's going to baptize anyone and everyone with the Holy Spirit. That's good news. That is great news. And this is how we start off the Gospel of Mark. We're going to, Bill is taking over next week to talk about Jesus' baptism and his temptation. Then we'll talk about the kingdom. But 
We have to start here and just pause and recognize as Jesus begins his ministry, he's going to encounter some crazy stuff. He'll be tempted by the devil. He'll be tempted by fame. He'll be tempted by all types of chaos, by his disciples. He'll be challenged by the demonic forces of the world. And what is he doing every time he comes into place? He's ushering God's kingdom, which is a baptism of the Holy Spirit. I think I want to settle here for a moment. Because if we just want to look at just this text, and the implications are enormous. Only God can bring the Holy Spirit. So all the titles that we have in this little, these little eight verses is that Jesus is the promised anointed one, the Messiah. He's Yahweh saves. He's the fulfillment of all the new Exodus prophecy. He's the fulfillment of Israel. He's getting us back to the garden. I mean, this whole timeline. And now we're back in Jerusalem. He's born. And Mark kind of is announcing this to his disciples. And he's telling this story to his disciples because guess what? The disciples forget it. Remember, this is written after Jesus' life. I'm, I'm kind of talking about Mark for a second. He's writing to anyone that would follow Jesus later in life after the Messiah has already come, died, and resurrected from the dead. And he's writing this so we would know who Jesus is and what his ministry was and what we're called to. And here's what i got to say. We've been talking about the Holy Spirit. We've been talking about the kingdom. And we're going to constantly be talking about it. I think we need to recognize that culture and society has given us a gospel that goes something like this. Yeah, he's Jesus, but he's the Lamb of God. He's my friend. He helps me with my sin management. I'm supposed to tithe a little bit. I'm supposed to go to midweek prayer sometimes. But we walk around with the kingdom of the world all over us. The nature of who we are is consumerist. We've somehow identified Jesus with a self-centered consumerist. That's the gospel of Jesus that the world has given us. We walk around with anxiety, with fear, with, with tons of pain. And I'm not talking about prosperity gospel. I'm talking about the reality that the kingdom of God is at our hands because it's through the power of the Holy Spirit. And if, if our society has said this is the type of Jesus that we want to serve, well, I, I think we should go to this Jesus. It's the good news of Mark. He's Yahweh. He's Messiah. He's the anointed one. His ministry is marked by the changing of our very natures through baptizing us in His Holy Spirit. That our lives are marked by shalom, peace. I know some of you are being hit by that right now. You walk around with anxiety, so much anxiety that you medicate because that's all we know how to do. And that's not a bad thing. I'm not saying that's bad. I'm just saying that it's sometimes so overwhelming, this anxiety that we walk around Hence, our bodies are physically hurting from it. We walk around in fear, insecurity. We walk around not knowing really what our identity is. We, we want to believe in the consumerist gospel because all we're doing is comparing ourselves to others. But Jesus will say, no, you are baptized in my spirit and now live accordingly. Can we reclaim the line of Judah? This Messiah servant that comes in power with the divinity at his, at his heart breath and his fingertips, and he gives it to us. So as I was praying about where we land, I think it's this, guys. Um, we have to recognize that the, the gospel of Mark, as a whole, as an introduction, is culturally subversive. It's a political 
attack, a spiritual reorientation, an awakening. And these first eight verses are basically saying to the disciples, wake up. If you would be reading this, you would wake up. You would know the history. You know what those phrases are. You would know what it means when he says baptism of the Holy Spirit because you might have seen that before. And he's telling his disciples to wake up. Wake up to the real Jesus. Wake up to the kingdom of God. And wake up to who you are in view of that. So, I want to say this. What does repentance look like for you today? And how do you prepare the way of the Lord? Some of you need to literally repent from this consumer Jesus. Because we talk about the Holy Spirit and you're like, well, that's cool, but I'm not even going to go there. The ministry of Jesus is the Holy Spirit. Some of you need to repent from just adopting that. And others of us, we just need to be baptized. We need to immerse ourselves in this Jesus. The Jesus of the Gospel. Exciting? Let's pray. Lord, You are Yahweh who saves. You are the resurrected Son of God. You are the baptizer of the Holy Spirit. And you have given us good news, Lord. We just want to wait for you for a moment. Lord, I pray uh, that this beginning of this new series would bring uh, movement into our lives to allow you to move in our lives, that we would partner with you. Um, pray this in your name. Amen. I cultivate Thanks for listening. If you'd like to hear other messages from The Garden or would like to find out more about The Garden Church, check out our website at thegardenlb.com dot org.